your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome to another edition of the Dr. Joe Show with me. I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to demystify science for you guys, make sure that you're up to date on whatever happens in the world of science, and we hope to separate sense from nonsense and also try to keep you out of the clutches of the charlatans. As usual, I have a question for you to start pondering, and uh, we'll get started with that. If you get this right, I'll give you another question, but of course we will discuss many other things. So here's the question for today. What is arachibutyrophobia? Arachibutyrophobia. If you know the answer to that, you can call in at 514-790-0800. Obviously, you can call with any other science-related question, query, comment. You can also make yourself known at 514-800 if you prefer texting. And uh, I watched a movie this week called The uh, Social Dilemma on on Netflix, which is uh, interesting. I would recommend that you take a look at it because it uh, discusses how social media has overtaken our life and the effect that it has on our life in terms of influencing our, our, our views. It's really a, a very, very interesting uh, movie. I mean, we're all aware, of course, uh, of the role that uh, uh, the Internet plays. You know that uh, if you go online somewhere and you start uh, you know, looking for shoes or some item of clothing or, or a new phone or a computer then uh, you'll start getting ads that refer very specifically to all of those items. Uh, So they know what uh, we are looking at, they know what we're doing, and they are targeting us. And all of this is is very interesting. So I would recommend that uh, uh, you do take a look at, uh, at that movie. All right. Well, let's go on to other things. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit today about medications, about drugs, because, of course, they play a very important role in our life, especially now as we're searching for some sort of medication that will be effective at treating COVID-19. We are, of course, all awaiting the vaccine. I doubt very much that we will have a safe and effective vaccine within the next year. Uh, We will have vaccines that are rolled out, but we just won't know what their efficacy is. I think we'll be reasonably assured of their safety, but not of their um, efficacy. Anyway, uh, let me talk to you about uh, a drug that uh, kind of changed the the course of of history. You know, it's really very rare that a drug is withdrawn from the market, especially after it has been widely sold for, oh, almost 40 years. And that is exactly what happened, though, with ranitidine. And this is a popular heartburn and ulcer medication. Many of you have uh, heard of it as Zantac, although it is now uh, off patent, so it can be sold by uh, many, many companies under many different uh, names. Anyway, people who had been happily taking this drug for decades uh, were shocked last year when they learned that this drug was being withdrawn. Why? Well, the word cancer appeared in the explanation that there had been a link to to, uh, cancer. Well, obviously, that uh, is a pretty shocking kind of thing when you start thinking, you know, gee, you know, I've been taking this drug, and now they're linking it to to cancer. So 
what what happened? How come this was okay? You know, for forty years <laughs> we're taking this this drug. Uh, what had changed? <clears throat> Well, there had been no increased risk of cancer discovered in patients who were taking granitidine, so that wasn't it. Neither had there been any studies that, that came to light that showed a greater incidence of cancer in animals that had been treated with the drug over the years. Neither were there any real laboratory studies that, that showed that it had any effect on, uh, on human cells that would trigger cancer. Well, what had changed? was the increased scrutiny of drugs for purity and the improved ability to detect trace contaminants with the ever-increasingly sophisticated analytical instruments that we have today. The alarm was raised in 2019 when a researcher at Valley Shore, an American pharmacy that is dedicated to testing the purity of every batch of drugs purchased from pharmaceutical companies, detected a contaminant which was subsequently identified as N-nitrosodimethylamine, abbreviated commonly as NDMA, and they found this in a sample of ranitidine. <clears throat> now, let me just uh, you know, mention that this is a, a very unusual uh, business because generally when a pharmacy buys a drug from a distributor that in turn you know, buys it from one of the major pharmaceutical companies, uh, they do not test it locally. You know the pharmacy, of course, uh, accepts, and and you know, I mean, in the vast majority of cases, correctly, that the company has done a good job in in synthesizing the drug, checking it, uh, etc. <clears throat> well, uh, this company that uh, you know that I mentioned, Valisure, American company, goes one step further. Now, obviously, there's you know an aspect of marketing in all of this. But they say that they check every single batch of a drug that they buy before selling it to the public, and they check it for uh, for purity. So uh, they kind of imply that they have you know an added uh, safety uh, safety measure here. So anyway, uh, as they the company was founded in 2015, so it's a relatively uh, new company. Anyway, so they raised the alarm in in 2019. Uh, when a researcher detected a contaminant in a sample of ranitidine uh, that was being uh, tested, and this was this uh, NDMA. Now, this was of some concern, since the International Agency for Research on Cancer had identified such nitroso compounds, as they are called, as, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans. <clears throat> well, at the time that this test revealed the presence of NDMA, there was no clue as to its origin, uh, but uh, widespread testing soon revealed its presence to a greater or to a lesser extent in many ranitidine formulations. So not only the, the initial one that they tested, but across the board. <clears throat> the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. and Health Canada ordered the removal of all ranitidine products although Canada now allows sales if the batch has been certified to contain no NDMA. However, it's very important, both agencies pointed out that the International Agency for Research on Cancer based its conclusion on a hazard analysis, which is the innate ability of a substance to do harm. They did not come to this conclusion based on risk, which is evaluated by taking into account hazard and extent of exposure. 
So the amount of NDMA detected in the ranitidine samples was not expected to pose a significant increase in cancer risk. But given that other ulcer drugs with no such risk were available, the decision was made to halt the sales. <clears throat> Scientists, though, were puzzled as to the origin of this contaminant in the ranitidine formulation, since no reagents or solvents that could give rise to these compounds were used in the synthesis. So this, of course, triggered some very clever detective work, and uh, it eventually turned out that the compound itself, ranitidine, could decompose and form traces of this NDMA, especially in uh, situation where there was heat. So the reaction was accelerated by heat. So then they started to, to look more deeply into this and discovered that, you know, some of these samples had been stored in a pharmacy for quite some time. Uh, eventually the compound would break down and result in, in small uh, doses of this NDMA, even though, as I, you know, add once more, no one suggested that this was really a risk. But nevertheless, any time that you have something that is labeled as a carcinogen, you don't want it present in, in your uh, uh, drug supply. Anyway, I'll tell you a little bit more about this, but first we've got to take a bit of a break and we'll check the traffic that is going on out there or not going on out there, and we'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, before we get back to my uh, ranitidine story, uh, Mike, I think, has an answer to my question. Hi, Mike. Yes, hello. Hi. Yeah, so the, I think the answer is um, the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of the mouth. Yeah, you're right, exactly. That is exactly uh, what it is. And uh, a lot of people actually have that because peanut butter does stick to the, the roof of your mouth. Although I must say I haven't personally experienced that too much. I, I've i maybe eaten peanut butter half a dozen times in my life. Some people may find that surprising. I just didn't grow up with it. I never developed really a taste for it. Uh, although, I mean, I don't find it ob objectionable. Uh, uh, okay, since you got that right, let me ask you another peanut-related question. Yes. There were two American presidents who were peanut farmers. Who were they? Uh Jimmy Carter? Yes, that's the easy one. And the other one? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think. Could you, it be Harry Truman? No, it was Thomas Jefferson. Well, it's way far back. It's way far back. They were both, uh, yeah, peanut farmers. Anyway, uh, also interesting to note that Bill Clinton's most requested sandwich in the White House was peanut butter and banana. <laughs> Like Elvis Presley. Or was is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Elvis Presley also. Yeah. I, I, I have a question yeah. for you. Um, I've read in many places that uh, honey is the only food that never spoils. Um, yeah, why? that may be true. Uh, that's because, well, I mean, sugar would fall into the same category and salt would fall into the same category and essentially for the same reason. Uh, how because... can honey uh, 2,000 years old be still eaten? Because honey is essentially sugar. Uh, it's uh -huh. just a concentrated solution of sugar, and sugar is an extremely good preservative. Uh, mm -hmm. Bacteria do not grow in the presence of a, a, a concentrated sugar solution, which is just what honey is. So okay. it Thank isn't surprising, but it isn't the only food. As I said, sugar itself and salt also will not uh, not spoil. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, you're, you're welcome. All right, given that we did have an answer to that uh, question, uh, I'll pose another uh, question. Um, after delivering the Gettysburg Address in 1863, Abraham Lincoln was quarantined. Why? Why was Abraham Lincoln quarantined after delivering the Gettysburg Address in 1863? That, of course, makes for a rather interesting story. Uh, but let me just get back to uh, the uh, Ranitidine story. And uh, so eventually some detective work did show that it was a, a breakdown of, of the compound itself that resulted in um, NDMA. And uh, obviously the, the fact that they were able to work this out uh, depended on knowing the structure of this molecule. And uh, this is where things get in interesting. Uh, I mean, historically, many drugs were discovered by the, the uh, lucky finding that an extract of a plant or a fungus had biological activity, and uh, that's how they eventually made their way into the pharmacopoeia without any knowledge of the molecular structure of the active ingredient. Extracts of the foxcuff plant, or, or you know, which turned out to uh, contain digitalis. Of course, they didn't know any the structure of it, or the penicillium mold, which gave rise to penicillin. Uh, so, although they were known to be therapeutic, uh, nobody knew until much, much later what the active ingredients were. I mean, they knew that uh, if you took an extract of the foxcuff plant, it would treat congestive heart failure, and uh, the penicillin mold would treat um, infections. And this was known long before the active ingredients were identified and characterized. However, ranitidine is different. It's a drug that was designed from first principles based on molecular structure. And this is you know, one of the reasons why pharmacology, which really is just a, a branch of chemistry, is, is so interesting. So anyway, let me let me just tell you this little story because uh, I find it fascinating, and I think you will too. So by the early 1970s, it was known that uh, the secretion of acid in the stomach, which obviously is, is part of the digestive process because it is the acid that begins the breakdown of food, and it is also the uh, acid that triggers the release of enzymes like, like pepsin that uh, degrade the food so that it can be absorbed. So anyway, the secretion of this acid occurs when cells in the lining of the stomach, uh, stimulated by the entry of food into the stomach, release a molecule called histamine. Yes, it is the same molecule that you hear about in context of allergic reactions. But in the stomach, this binds to receptors of cells that are capable of secreting acid, very much like a key fits a lock. And when it's the right fit, then hydrochloric acid is released by those cells. And the receptor on these cells is termed an H2 receptor uh, for histamine 2 to distinguish it from histamine receptors on white blood cells elsewhere in the body, and those are the ones involved in allergic reaction. So the stomach itself is protected by a layer of mucus, but if that layer erodes, the acid attacks the stomach wall or the esophagus, or the small intestine, that is the beginning of the small intestine, the duodenum. And this causes sores, and these sores are referred to as peptic ulcers. 
Patients suffering from ulcers were generally told to use antacids, follow a bland diet, and they often required surgery because if ulcers would bleed, that would lead to a life-threatening situation. And then along came researchers at Smith, Klein, and French in the UK who hypothesized that uh, a molecule with a structure similar to histamine may be capable to, of binding to this histamine to receptor without activating it, and simultaneously it would prevent interaction with histamine. So it was kind of like looking for a key that fits the lock, but it's the wrong key, doesn't turn the lock, but it prevents the right key from fitting. Some 200 compounds were synthesized and tested before an effective histamine antagonist was found. And that was cimetidine. It went to the market as tagamet. And it was very good. It did have some side effects, but changing the molecular structure of cimetidine a little bit finally resulted in ranitidine, which, was, which became uh, the world's number one drug until it was replaced by uh, the so-called proton pump inhibitors uh, like omeprazole, uh, that's LOSEC that you may have heard about. So anyway, uh, ranitidine was really interesting because it was one of the first drugs ever developed based on a knowledge of how the drug worked and by designing a molecular structure to make it fit into the appropriate receptor site. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll check what is going on in the world. We'll check news. And after that, we'll be back and uh, talk some more science. And I'll have another question for you. And hopefully, we'll get an answer to the question of why Abraham Lincoln uh, was uh, quarantined after the Gettysburg Address. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I'm still looking for the answer to the question about why Abraham Lincoln had to be quarantined in 1863 after delivering the Gettysburg Address. If you know the answer, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. And if that is too difficult for you, uh, let me put another question out there. What is zygology? Zygology, Z-Y-G-O-L-O-G-Y. What is zygology? Uh, let me wish our, all our Jewish listeners a happy new year, Shana Tava, and uh, explain uh, why the Jewish calendar is different from the uh, uh, Gregorian calendar. Uh, the Jewish calendar actually uh, starts with the creation of the world, uh, the supposed creation of the world, and uh, the great philosopher Maimonides somehow calculated uh, when this happened. And uh, now we are going into, what is it, I think 50, 5781, I think is the uh, Jewish New Year, uh, which uh, you know suggests that the world was created 5781 years ago. Uh, that, of course, is the uh, cultural and religious view. It is not the scientific view. Scientific view is that the Earth was created much, much longer than that. The, the universe was created something like 13 billion years ago with the uh, Big Bang. And the, the Earth maybe 4 billion years ago, something like that. And, of course, there is scientific evidence uh, for that. But, uh, you know, cultural evidence also is interesting because, you know, some, some people uh, guide their lives by that, which is uh, uh, certainly um, Acceptable. I don't know when the world was created. I wasn't there. 
although I guess I'm, I'm getting older and older, and some people say that maybe I was there. I no, I, I wasn't. All right, anyway, a <clears throat> uh, question uh, came in uh, via text, and um, it was about uh, what treatments are available now in, in, uh, against COVID-19, uh, because there's so much talk, especially in the U.S., about uh, therapeutics. And someone came across a new drug by Lilly, uh, the pharmaceutical company, and they're interested in, in uh, what this is all about. I, I think probably the the drug that uh, the questioner is referring to is this uh, monoclonal antibody that uh, uh, Lilly is, is touting. And uh, it's an interesting idea, but uh, I think the study here is, is uh, it's not all that uh, comforting. As you know, when we have a bacterial infection or a viral infection, the body mounts an attack against the invader. And uh, this attack involves antibodies, which are very special proteins that recognize the invader. They're generated by immune cells in the body. They recognize the invader and uh, essentially bind to it and destroy it. When there is an attack by an invader, the body produces many different kinds of antibodies, some of which are more active than others. Some of these are called neutralizing antibodies, and those are the most effective ones because those are the ones that bind to and will neutralize the antigen, as it is so-called, which is the attacking substance. Uh, if one could isolate specifically the antibody that targets a specific invader, this antibody, of course, would be very useful as a medicine. So what Eli Lilly did was they had a patient who had recovered from COVID-19, and from their blood, they isolated uh, an antibody that they deemed was effective. And then they cloned it, which means that they copied it. They made a large number of these uh, antibodies. Such an antibody is called a monoclonal antibody. So it's one specific antibody that targets one specific part of an invading organism. There's a lot of potential, a lot of hope with monoclonal antibodies because they target specific invaders. Now, in the study that they quote, and I, I suspect that this is the one that the, uh, the questioner is, uh, is referring to, they took uh, patients who were not hospitalized but who had tested positive for COVID-19 and were showing either mild or, or moderate uh, symptoms. And they treated them with... Uh, a version of this antibody, and they, they gave them three separate doses to see which one would work the best. <clears throat> and uh, I have the statistics actually from, from the study. Uh, five of 300 patients who received the drug uh, ended up eventually being hospitalized, so five of 300. But of the 150 who received the placebo, nine ended up being hospitalized. So five versus nine, I mean, this is not a huge difference. But of course, it could be reported to make it sound really good because you could say that there was a 72% reduced risk, right? Because the difference between five and nine is 72%. So it is not a big difference, but although it is something that uh, is statistically significant, so this is worth pursuing further. Uh, there's one other troublesome uh, aspect of this study, and that is that 
they actually measured the viral load in the blood of these people after they had been given the different doses of the monoclonal antibody. And it turned out that only the middle dose was effective at reducing the concentration of the, of the virus. So only the, the middle dose was effective. Now that is, is a very, very strange finding because usually uh, there is an interaction with, with drugs that is dose-dependent. That is, as you increase the dose, you also increase the effectiveness. It's possible that you also uh, increase side effects, but you increase the effectiveness. So it would be a very unusual finding that of three doses, the middle dose works and the higher dose and the lower dose do not. This is not the general way that drugs function. So it, it almost suggests that the findings for that middle dose were due to chance. Uh, anyway, it, this is just one study. It is not in a very large number of, of patients. And as you can see, the difference uh, between five and nine patients hospitalized, this is not a, a big difference. So there will have to be bigger studies mounted. And there are many companies, of course, working on this concept of monoclonal antibodies. And uh, I suspect that uh, uh, some of them will turn out to be useful. But just as a final point about uh, monoclonal antibodies is that they are very difficult to produce. Uh, this is not like making aspirin tablets. Monoclonal antibodies are very difficult to produce. And uh, especially if you're going to produce them on a large scale. What that means, uh, as you can expect, is uh, something that is difficult to produce is going to be very expensive. So this is not uh, going to be a treatment that is going to be widely available purely because of, uh, of expense. I also have to point out that the, uh, all of the research being carried out on, on uh, vaccines, and there are about 170 different vaccines that you know, are being tried now, is that uh, the cost here is also uh, a lot. And uh, you know, it turns out that uh, a vaccine will be somewhere in the ballpark of $30 a dose. And when you're talking about having to vaccinate billions of people, that is a lot of money. Of course, first, uh, we want to find a vaccine that works before worrying about the cost. All right, we're going to take a break. Listening to the Dr. Joe Show, we'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Please remember to check out our website, www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. McGill.ca slash OSS. That's where we put a lot of interesting information. That's where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. And also, that's where you will find the information about our upcoming Chartier Public Science Symposium. Now, uh, unfortunately, because of, uh, of COVID, we will not be able to do this in the usual fashion, uh, which uh, means that there will be no live audience. It will all be uh, streamed. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is going to be, I think, outstanding. The topic that we're going to uh, focus on this year is whom do we trust? 
And could there be a better year to ask that question because of all the fake news, all the anecdotes out there masquerading as, as science? And we're going to have four really, really interesting speakers. I will uh, tell you about them in, in the weeks to come. Uh, but uh, let me just tell you about uh, one now. One of our speakers will be Britt Hermes, uh, whose training was as a naturopath. Uh, and uh, she found that, uh, you know, once she had been practicing for a while, there were a lot of questions that needed to be asked. And uh, there were some very serious discrepancies in that profession, discrepancies from uh, regular uh, medicine. Anyway, she's going to talk about uh, fake and fact in the area of, uh, of naturopathy. Uh, so we will have um, a very good uh, time, I think, uh, despite the fact that it will not be a live audience. And uh, we'll, we'll do this over two separate sessions, uh, October, uh, the 3rd Monday in October is, is when uh, the first one is. I forget exactly what the date is. I'll remind you of that uh, next time. It will be at 12 noon our time, but uh, it will be recorded, so you will be able to watch it at, uh, at any time. And uh, we will have uh, two talks uh, on that Monday and two talks following uh, Monday. And anyway, all of the information is there for you if you go to the website. So it's mcgill.ca slash OSS. And we will also ask you to register. The only reason for that, of course, it's, it's all free. The only reason for that is so that we can send you the link where you'll be able to um, listen and watch the symposium, which promises to be just as interesting as if we were doing it uh, live. All right. I think Bonnie may have an answer to the question that I asked. Bonnie. Oh, I, I'll take a wild guess, and then I have a question for you. Um, I went through a, mat, um, a process of elimination. I didn't Google anything. And I think um, Abe Lincoln's son died of typhoid, but I think you get that from drinking water, which also killed Prince Albert. But I don't think that's contagious, but you could correct me. So that leaves whooping cough, diphtheria, TB, or cholera. So <laughs> my answer is um, I'm going to go with cholera. Well, you skirted around the issue. You mentioned a lot of diseases that could have been, but but none of those are the effective ones. Although okay. uh, although we did have uh, we did have someone uh, uh, Drew who did text in the right answer, and the answer was smallpox, uh, uh -huh. because actually his son uh, Tad uh, contracted smallpox, and the concern was that uh, Lincoln himself may be affected. Now, by 1863. They knew, of course, that smallpox was a contagious disease. And uh, the traditional protection was quarantine. Uh, and uh, so Abraham Lincoln was asked to stay away from others uh, when his son came down with uh, a smallpox. Neither of them contracted a serious version of the disease. There were many others, of course, historically, who came down with smallpox. George Washington recovered from smallpox. Uh, Catherine the Great uh, feared for the safety of her son, Paul. So she made 
sure that large crowds were kept at bay, and she sought to uh, isolate him. Uh, eventually, she di she decided to have herself inoculated uh, against smallpox by a, a Scottish uh, doctor. Now, this was before uh, the vaccine, and this was at a time when they would just put a little bit of uh, pus taken from uh, a smallpox victim into a scar on the on the arm, and uh, this was known as variolation. So there were a lot of people who were affected by uh, by smallpox, and Abraham Lincoln was one who was nearly affected, but he was made to quarantine. So very good. I mean, you you uh, kind of got the gist of it, but not the detail. Okay. Well, okay. I don't mind being wrong because then I always learn something. Good. So I hadn't even thought of smallpox. Thank you. Okay. So um, what's your question? Yes. I've been taking the exotrain, which I know has recirculated air, but at the times I take it, it's never crowded, and 99.9% .9 of the people are wearing their masks. Now, I'm wondering, and I should I go out and buy a car? I'm on the train for about 45 minutes. Um, I'm masked. Plus, I wear a visor or sunglasses to cover my eyes. And it's like I have no idea if they have HEPA filters, charcoal filters, because um, I feel the train is not as modern as the new fleet. I, I suspect you're right. I suspect you're right. But uh, are the windows open or those are not open? No, the no. windows are permanently sealed. Yeah. I don't know. It's a very good question. I don't know what kind of ventilation they have on, on the train. Uh, obviously, masking will reduce uh, any kind of, of, of risk. And uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe someone who, who knows about trains will can call and inform us about just what the ventilation on, on the train is. Although, I, I you know, when they do the, the um, um, studies on, on people who have come down with the disease and they s sort of backtrack to see, you know, where they have been, contact, etc., I've not seen any of that tracing uh, that targeted a train. So... You know, I, I think we would have we would have seen it already if if that were a big risk factor. Concerned, especially with the forest fires out west. Yeah. But um, I'm a senior, and I'm wondering. Okay, it's time to buy a car. Um, so I thought, have there been any studies on um, people getting it from the bus? Uh, no, not that I've seen, not that I've seen. But uh, you also have to think about the fact that, you know, there's risk in driving a car too. You're you're much more likely to have an accident with a car than on a train. So you got to take that into account too. All right, well, maybe we'll hear from someone calling uh, next time about the ventilation on the train. Anyway, thanks for that. And uh, once again, the hour has just uh, jolted by. But we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Uh, until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.